Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. Today's film is, I guess, kind of a convergence of things. Joe, you were wanting to cover another film that comes in the wake of Star Wars, 1977 Star Wars. So many films angling for a slice of that success. Well, yeah, there are so many films you could call Star Wars ripoffs. Uh, I think it, it's kind of interesting uh, to study the many different ways that one can rip off Star Wars. It's sort of a, a genre of study within its own, uh, Star Wars ripoff studies. But I'd say of most of the movies we've watched that have come out in the wake of Star Wars to ride on its coattails for marketing purposes, this one is one of the least like Star Wars in terms of narrative content. Yeah, yeah, this is uh this was Disney's answer to Star Wars. Now, Disney's answer to Star Wars 33 years later would be just to buy Lucasfilm pretty much, but uh-huh. at the time you can kind of get a sense of the uh the swagger here. It's like, oh, Star Wars has done very well, but you know, we're 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 the Walt Disney Company. We've got Imagineers, gosh darn it. And uh, you should see the kinds of things that they can design. We've got this long history with uh, with TV and film. Let us take a crack at this general area, at this uh, this this kind of science fiction. And you know, I bet we can create something that will connect just as well, if not better, with the audience. Now, that didn't quite come about, but I do think what they produced is interesting, if not quite on the level of Star Wars. I agree. I agree. Uh, This is a film that I remember quite fondly from my own childhood. I drew a lot of like crayon etchings of the robots from this film uh, back in the day, especially Maximilian, uh, who we'll describe here in a bit. But I do have to stress as well that while I saw this film, and I guess maybe it was like, you know, VHS rentals or something, or maybe they would occasionally show it on TV or something. 
But my main connection with the, with the film was not from the movie itself, but from the uh, 24-page read-along book and record that was put out with this <laughs> that, I, that I have. And I think my mom probably still has a copy of this. It's a little flip book, and it comes with a little record that you play, and it, it reads along and has all these sound effects from the movie. Well, wait, so if it's a record, does it play that scary string theme? I think so, yeah. Like, when I was re-watching the movie for this episode, and it's the first time I've seen The Black Hole in, gosh, uh, I mean, at least 10 years, probably much longer, um, the music instantly resonated with me. So, yes, mm-hmm. it definitely had uh, some of the score on there. I've actually never seen it before. This was my first time, though. You've talked, you've made reference to it a number of times, and listeners have written in recommending we cover it. So this is uh, partially a listener-suggested episode from multiple listeners. But I was kind of surprised to find that, in a way, despite this being a movie from 1979, it is a very traditional, almost old-fashioned space adventure movie where a crew of astronauts with defined roles encounter something frightening deep in the heart of space, except it was made in the late 70s with, at the time, cutting-edge special effects, especially computer effects. And the thing the astronauts encounter is not a spaceship full of green aliens, but a black hole, which, of course, is a real type of object in the universe, still mysterious and awe-inspiring today. But at the time, it would have been a much more uh, recent entry into the public consciousness, a more baffling and unfamiliar concept to the general audiences. And in fact, the original trailer for the movie spends almost the entire trailer basically just explaining the concept of a black hole to the audience. Like, isn't this scary? Yeah, I mean, if, if not for the fact that this is a big budget picture, it's almost like black hole, black hole exploitation cinema, right? Just <laughs> yeah. getting in there first to capitalize on it, but then also yeah, having to do the legwork of explaining why this is important. Now, I sort of couldn't help but compare this film to some other ones. One that kept coming to mind uh, to contrast with The Black Hole is Tron, which came out three years later in 1982, maybe because both films made use of what were at the time uh, cutting edge and uh, what were considered very impressive computer effects. Though I think Tron's computer effects uh, are able to establish a more unique visual style than the computer effects in this movie, which I do really like some of the visual effects in uh, the black hole, some more than others. And the computer effects in, in the black hole really, I think, are just they're not very exciting to modern audiences. No, but certainly there are a lot of shots in the film that are really beautiful and colorful to look at. I don't think mm-hmm. I'd seen Black Hole in this quality before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, streamed it off Disney Plus, one of the main places to to watch it these days. Um, so a lot of the, a lot of the time, I was just watching the screen, just really taking in these beautiful. Like I kept thinking about Epcot. You know, it's like mm-hmm. a, a you can see the Imagineers' um, fingerprints on this picture. You know, there's a lot of gorgeous like '70s style to it. Um, I think the comparison to Tron uh, is apt, except I would say infinitely more watchable than Tron. Like the Tron mm. really really goes after the cutting edge special effects in a way that this film thankfully doesn't like one of the taglines for black hole is um a place beyond man's vision but not beyond his reach and i feel like tron is a movie um (laughs) beyond man's reach but not beyond his vision you know for that period of of filmmaking i don't know folks can disagree but um 
I have not been able to really get into a rewatch of the original Tron. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder, I, I have, but I wonder if it's mainly powered by nostalgia. It could be that that's coloring. But another thing I would say that's a difference, though, is that uh, I think Tron has uh, is a little bit more quotable and maybe has more compelling characters, or at least for mm-hmm. for the first half of the movie or so when, with regards to the black hole. Because after I picked this, I mean, I was enjoying watching it, but I'd say maybe not the first half, the first third or so. I was feeling a little disappointed because it seemed something about it felt kind of sterile, like even though it had some good visual effects, I thought the movie kind of was kind of lacking in humanity and personality, and it got a little bit better in that regard about a third of the way in. And this kind of matched up with something I'd been reading about how there were uh, early scenes in the movie that were cut that were basically all character development scenes uh, with our main characters. Like when we start meeting them, essentially all they're doing is like giving techno babble lines. They're on the ship saying like, Mm -hmm. you know, shift to manual uh, coming up 3.4 degrees. Oh, it's a black hole. You know, there's very little humanity in the beginning of the film, or at least it seemed to me. Yeah, it is. It's remarkably slow at the beginning. And I'm, I'm glad I I wasn't watching it with my son, because I think I would have had to have done a lot of hand holding through the, 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 the drier portions leading up to anything really cool going on. But I thought that once they actually get on board the uh, Reinhardt's ship and they uh, start kind of like noticing all of the strange goings on there, it, it became a lot more interesting to me. Yeah, because ultimately, like this film, it's interesting. This is kind of a, the comparison to Star Wars is, I think, essential in terms of the time period. But while Star Wars is a sweeping adventure epic, um, this is more of a a haunted house movie in the same Mm -hmm. way that another uh, certainly more famous and successful science fiction movie from the same year uh, was. And that, of course, is Ridley Scott's Alien. That was very much, I, I've heard Scott and others speak of it as a haunted house film. Like that was how they sort of put it together originally. So, yeah, people wind up uh, somewhere out in the boonies, in this case, near the edge of a black hole. And here's this old kooky house and there's an old kooky man in it and uh, shenanigans unfold. Another movie I couldn't help but compare the black hole to is the much later film from the late 90s, Event Horizon, which in some ways seems to be a lowbrow R-rated adaptation of Disney's The Black Hole. Would you agree? Yeah, in some respects, uh, certainly. Um, The Black Hole, but with maybe worse workplace dynamics, I'm not sure. Yeah, Uh, There's some pretty bad workplace dynamics in this. Um, We'll get into when we get into spoilers. But like the the heaven-hell things, like Mm -hmm. the the religious connotations with the black hole and somebody who wants to go in to, to, we have such sights to show you. Well, I guess that's Hellraiser, but uh, we won't need eyes to see where we're going. That's, it's, there's a lot of similar stuff going on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, yeah. Event Horizon is a solid comparison. Now, this is definitely one of those films. We, we, we talk about a lot of B-films uh, on Weird House Cinema, but we also talk about uh, occasional blockbusters and, and higher-budget films for sure. Uh, this one definitely is a selection that had a heftier price tag. And a heftier price tag attached to things that, as I already said, but we'll stress again, 
don't look super impressive when you see them today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, n- not like they look bad. They're just like very simple because that's what computer graphics were capable of at the time. And uh, so I was reading about this in an article for the New York Times from December 16th, 1979 by John Colhane called The Black Hole Casts the Computer as Movie Maker. <laughs> Uh, So it begins by describing the opening credits of the black hole in which we see a grid of green lines intersecting. So it looks like graph paper. You know, it's just a flat square grid floating in space. And then we zoom over it and then we realize there's like a a funnel in the middle of it. It's It's a hole and you plunge down into it. Colhane writes, computer graphics are expensive. Those 75 seconds of animated grid movement in the black hole cost Disney $50,000. Nevertheless, the fabulous success of Star Wars, a movie costing $11 million in 1977, and with worldwide grosses now exceeding $420 million, has inspired producers to loosen the purse springs for special effects of all kinds. The Black Hole, Disney's costliest movie ever, which will run about $20 million dollars and paramount's star trek the movie which cost 40 million are the two most expensive productions to open in new york this christmas oh wow you know that's center i never really thought as much about star trek the movie being also something that comes about uh in the wake of of star wars and because of star wars oh yeah i mean whether or not the movie itself was a direct ripoff of Star Wars or was heavily comparable to Star Wars in some way. I think a lot of people secured funding for their mm-hmm. movies by saying, like, it'll be like Star Wars. It'll be that big of a moneymaker. Yeah, or just like the basic proof. It's like, look, look what kind of money. Let, let me speak your language. Look how much money a science fiction movie <laughs> with with the, with great uh, effects can make. And, you know, that gets through uh, to the industry. So this article is kind of interesting if you want to uh, look it up because it provides a snapshot of what people were thinking was possible with uh, computer effects in 1979 and talks about the idea far down the road. They say it'll be a ways off, but the the first movie completely animated by computers. And mm. it's obviously a very exciting prospect to them. So, but this, this is another example. I think this has even come up on the show before about like early CGI being uh, super compelling to people at the time, but something that just has not aged very well at all. Like it doesn't look that cool now. I mean, some of it does, but most of the time it doesn't. But at the time, people were just in awe of it. And an example would be this, this like grid of green squares that just looks like graph paper. And then eventually it turns into a funnel. Uh, that's the black hole, you know, that's the, the bend in space time caused by the, the singularity and the, uh, and you get to go down the hole. That sounds pretty simple now, but they originally had that made for a trailer for the black hole, uh, which is essentially just explaining what a black hole is. And then they were so impressed by it, they ended up using it in the movie itself. So now it's the opening credits of the film as well. <laughs> I think one of the, inter- the most interesting um, examples to sort of uh, put all this in the frame of reference for like where we are now is um, John Carpenter's Escape from New York, which has that uh, computer. It seems to be a computer animated uh, like, uh, you know, readout of New York, of Manhattan in the, the uh, opening of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's made to look like computer graphics, but it's not. It's uh, it's an actual physical model that they use like tape and uh, contrast of dark and light to create this effect uh, because mm. 
at the time, like this was the far more affordable way to go about it is actually build the thing. Nowadays, it's it's definitely pushed on beyond that and into the opposite. It's it's almost always cheaper to create the digital version of it, no you know, quality notwithstanding. But um, <laughs> but uh, but still, like to create the physical version of a thing is generally far more expensive. In the original Star Wars, there are a number of animations that look like they're supposed to be computer screens or computer animations, but they were actually done by hand. Like the targeting computer in the mm-hmm. X-Wing is, in effect, done by hand, but it's made to look like a computer effect. All right. Well, do you have, a, do you have a, an elevator pitch for this one? Oh, I didn't think of one. What, what do we, yeah, I don't know. You go to space to find life, but sometimes you just find a black hole. I guess uh, I guess you could make some argument for it's it's Captain Nemo or it's, you know, Captain Ahab, one of the the two in space. Strong elements of that. Yes, uh, definitely the Captain Nemo thing. Do you think that Disney World was working on a ride tie in and they they just never did it? If my memory is correct on this, I watched a a documentary about it. I believe Star Tours uh, at Disney that ultimately, you know, is a, a Star Wars themed ride. I believe it was originally going to be a black hole ride, but um, oh. it, it ended up not working out. And I, I don't remember all the reasons there. Um, but I mean, the obvious reason would be why, why have it themed around the black hole when you could do Star Wars, actual Star Wars. Okay, should we hear some trailer audio? Let's do it. There is an inexorable force in the cosmos where time and space converge. A place beyond man's vision, but not his reach. It is the most mysterious and awesome point in the universe where the here and now may be forever. It is unavoidable. Following everything in its path. Radio waves, light, even planets and stars. Are you programmed to speak? Gravity's at maximum, Dan. Let's go into that black hole now. Um, if you want to watch the movie for yourself before proceeding through the rest of the episode, well, it's widely available. Disney Plus subscribers subscribers will naturally find the film there. And I have to say the quality looks really great. Um, I, mm-hmm. I really was drawn in by it. I wasn't expecting to be as drawn in by the visuals of it. Um, it has also been released on DVD and Blu-ray as well if you prefer physical media or want to you know, rent it at a, an actual rental store if you have one of those in your area. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. 
I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. All right. Uh, the people who brought this film together, um, the, the, the main ones anyway, that we, we tend to, to, to reference on the show. Let's start at the top with the director. It's Gary Nelson, who lived 1934 through 2022, mostly known for his TV work, but he worked on some pretty big TV shows of the 1960s, followed by such films as 73's Santee, 81's Nighthawks, 82's Jimmy the Kid, and 86's Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold, and also a number of TV movies and miniseries as well. Um, He was Judy Meredith's husband. We, of course, recently talked about her. She was in uh, Queen of Blood. So that's the director. And then when it comes to screenplay and story credits, there are three individuals referenced. Uh, There's Jeb Rosebrook, who lived 1935 through 2018, has a screenplay story credit, mostly a TV writer, mostly Westerns, wrote... Not one, but two Kenny Rogers Gambler movies. What? I didn't know that was a thing. They made Gambler movies after the song? Oh, yeah. There was a whole... I forget how many, but there's like a whole franchise of Kenny Rogers the Gambler movies. I don't think I've ever seen them, but like I remember seeing the uh, the, the TV ads for them because they're going to play the Gambler in the ads, of course, and you can't help but... but pipe up and start watching the, the trailer and then you know I never watched them though I don't know if I've done my bit on the gambler on the show before but I, I've always found that song to be the, the poker advice is not specific enough you gotta <laughs> know when to hold them and know when to fold them yeah duh like what, what are the rules for when to hold them and when to fold them or when when to walk away when to run I, I yeah. don't know I guess he's saying like I can't teach you to do this it's all gut instinct <laughs> <laughs> but that's not that's not advice. <laughs> he, he's, he's just a gambler. He's not a teacher. Yeah. All right. Um, another story credit. It's just a story credit goes to Bob Barbash, who lived 1919 through 1995. Uh, once again, mostly TV, mostly Westerns, but in this case, no gambler movies. 
Bummer. So you might be wondering, well, does anybody in this have any like sci-fi um, uh, genre uh, history? Yes, there is one, and that is Richard H. Landau, who lived uh, 1914 through 1993, has a screenplay story credit, a writer with credits going back to the early 40s, and certainly there are a bunch of Westerns in there, because that was the time period, but also the 1953 sci-fi movie Spaceways, directed by Terrence Fisher, 55's The Quartermass Experiment, 57's Pharaoh's Curse, 58's Frankenstein 1970, and he also wrote one episode of the original Outer Limits series. After that, it's mostly TV credits, uh, but it includes uh, episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man, The Incredible Hulk, and 1980's Beyond Westworld. Pacific Ocean World. (laughs) All right, getting into the cast. Uh, at the right at the top, playing Dr. Hans Reinhardt, our um, deranged black hole scientist, uh, basically our, our Captain Nemo character for the flick, is Maximilian Schell, who lived 1930 through 2014, Austrian-born Swiss actor whose family fled the Nazis during World War II. His uh, German and European credits go all the way back to the mid-1950s, I believe. His earliest film credit, Sons, Mothers, and a General, actually featured both Shell and Klaus Kinski in small roles as soldiers. They're like way down in the cast, but uh, they both pop up there. Uh, He ascended in German-language TV and cinema and then made the move to Hollywood and almost immediately won an Academy Award for Best Actor in 1961's Judgment at Nuremberg. Subsequent credits include 74's The Odessa File, 77's Cross of Iron, 81's The Chosen. There's a 1986 Peter the Great miniseries, a 92 Stalin miniseries, John Carpenter's Vampires, and Deep Impact, both of those from 1998. He's in John Carpenter's Vampires? Who is he in that? He's like a Catholic church um, representative who hires the vampire slayer um, Uh, James Woods. Yeah. yeah, it's a film I've only seen once, and it's probably going to remain at once. <laughs> yeah, my He's God, a, I love John Carpenter. I could not finish that movie; just awful. <laughs> the book, the book was pretty good, as I recall. It's based on a novel that's um, uh, that's pretty terrifying in places, but uh, the movie, yeah, um, not 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 top tier Carpenter. But Maximilian Schell is a is a great pick for for this kind of villain. He's uh, you know, he's he's kind of complex. Uh, he is a, a little bit refined. He's egotistical, and of course, uh, you know, has has the right touch of madness. He also, I, he has he has a good hair and beard for this role. He mm-hmm. he seems like the sort of person who could have played Rasputin if he needed to. Yeah, great wild hair and beard in this, and just I think it, I mean it, I don't want to oversell it because it is what it is in this film he's like the deranged villain on a spaceship mm-hmm. who has robots working for him but it is still a very captivating performance like anytime uh dr hans reinhardt is speaking um you're taken in by it and his eyes are just really uh, yeah they really suck you right in like black holes <laughs> i did notice that in a lot of scenes uh I would be very interested whenever he was talking but then when the scene was over i would forget what it was he had said yeah, I mean, basically, just egotistical this, I'm the best that, you guys should stick around, uh, I'm going into the black hole, that sort of thing. Right. All right, we also have Anthony Perkins in this, playing Dr. Alex Durant. Perkins lived 1932 through 1992, American actor who's, of course, best known for his role as Norman Bates in 1960's Psycho, a film that really flipped the switch 
on his uh, prior casting as mostly a, just a handsome leading man and not a deranged killer. Um, he would go on to do two sequels to Psycho, uh, but is also known for 1974's Murder on the Orient Express, 62's The Trial, 84's Crimes of Passion, and 1970's Catch-22. Also of note for uh, deeper B-movie cuts, 1989's Edge of Sanity and 1988's Destroyer. In this, he plays a kind of uh, groveling superfan of, of Dr. Reinhardt. Yeah, he's totally Team Reinhardt, just almost immediately upon meeting the man. Uh, he's like, yes, this whatever his scientific vision here is, I want to be a part of it. Um, this this is the the road to success. He also gets really offended when other people criticize Reinhardt. <laughs> yeah, but but in a very toxic like, fan dynamic. <laughs> yeah, but he's very he's very dry about it. I like his I like Perkins' energy in this. You know, he's 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 quick to defend Reinhardt, but he's um, you know he he keeps uh, an even keel. He's a uh, uh, you know, he's uh, he keeps it together and seems to be making rational, if not, uh, you know, one sided argument. Yeah. OK. All right. But um, so so he's like what the the science officer um, on the vessel that comes to the Cygnus at the edge of the black hole. But yeah. with that, that ship also is the Palomino, I believe. The Palomino. Palomino. And the captain, we have Captain Dan Hollins, played by Robert Forster. Love Robert Forster. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's great. Lived 41 through 2019. American actor whose credits go all the way back to the late 60s. He played the lead in 69's Medium Cool, directed by Haskell Wexler. Later films include Reflections in a Golden Eye from 67 and Alligator from 1980. But he really enjoyed a late career resurgence. So there are a lot of you out there, they're probably, you probably know him best from like 1997's Jackie Brown. Oh, yeah. His role in the uh, Breaking Bad series as Ed, the, uh, <laughs> what he's, uh, he's not a fixer. He's the, the guy who can make you disappear and get a new life, right? Yeah. Uh, the main thing I remember is he shows up to give Brian Cranston a copy of Mr. Magorium's Wonder Emporium in his uh, cabin in the, in the mountains. Oh, yeah. Um, Forster also shows up in 2011's The Descendants, um, the series Twin Peaks, The Return. Uh, so, yeah, very much a guy whose late career uh, was, you know, really excelled. And uh, Captain Dan is a lot of fun. He's a very smooth cucum cucumber. He doesn't, I don't think his pulse rate <laughs> rises too high, no matter what's happening in the film. You know, everything's by the books, no messing around. And it makes for some nice moments of kind of like dry humor, too. Agreed. He is the steady hand. I think I said he's a smooth cucumber. I guess technically he's a cool cucumber. I'm not not sure which. Uh, he's a smooth cucumber and a cool operator. There you go. All right. We also have another guy that's on the ship, and this is Lieutenant Charles Pizer. Um, not a lot to say about this guy. He's just, you know, the, the younger dude um, on the vessel, played by Joseph Bottoms. Uh, born 1954, American actor best known for 74's The Dove, the 1978 miniseries Holocaust, as well as this film. He was also in 1981's The Intruder Within, a made-for-TV alien knockoff of sorts that's been on my to-watch list. Um, he's the brother of Timothy Bottoms, best known for 1971's The Last Picture Show and 73's The Paper Chase. I thought Timothy Bottoms was best known for looking like George W. Bush, when they, which is why they cast him in multiple things to play George W. Bush. Yes, he was in a, such a comedy uh, just prior to 9-11, as I recall. And, and, uh, and then, uh, then it was canceled. But then I think they also cast him in like serious 9-11 movies and stuff. Did they? they? Wow. That's what I thought. That, 
that may be the case. Yeah. I mean, he does, he, he, especially at that time period. Yeah. It was solid casting and really solid actor. So whatever you wanted out of him, if you wanted comedy or if you wanted drama, uh, you know, uh, Timothy Bottoms could deliver. And if Timothy Bottoms couldn't deliver, I guess you could, you could ask Joseph Bottoms. Uh, but to my knowledge, he never played uh, a president. Wait, but I actually do remember him from one other thing that made an intense impression on me when I was a kid. I think it was a movie my dad watched on TV and I caught part of. It was a movie called Roller Coaster from 1977 <laughs> where Timothy Bottoms plays, I I could be remembering this wrong, but I think he plays a bomber who bombs roller coasters. It's a horrifying oh idea. It's like, come on. Some of us are already frightened enough getting on a roller coaster and you got to put this kind of film out there. I'm right in that camp. I already did not really like <laughs> roller coasters, and then I watched this movie. Oh, great! Oh, no, I, I'm not familiar with it. But Helen Hunt's in it. I don't remember her. I was, I was. Oh, so she must have been like, uh, you know, 13 or something at the time. Mm-hmm. All right, another member of the crew, and really one of the more conceptually interesting members of the crew, anyway, is Dr. Kate McRae, played by Yvette Mimieu, who lived 1942 through 2022. Uh, American actor who played the um, the character Weena in 1960s The Time Machine. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, she wasn't a Morlock. She was what were they the the Eloy the Eloy? I, the, I, yeah, yeah. The 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 kind of like gentle dumb people who live on the surface and are eaten yeah. by Morlocks. Exactly. So she was she was the main uh, one of those in the uh, six, 1960 Time Machine movie. Later credits include 73's The Neptune Factor. Uh, that's an underwater film that also starred uh, Ernest Borgnine. 1970s Journey into Fear. 1978's The Devil Dog, The Dog from Hell, Satan's Actual Dog. I'm, I just <laughs> added the last part. Uh, and various TV appearances. The Dog from Hell is one of the most superfluous subtitles I've ever seen. I generally am not a big fan of colon subtitles in movie titles, <laughs> but that one is just chef kiss. Yeah, it's so unnecessary. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll discuss your character in a bit more detail later on. But uh, it's one of these where um, the the concept behind her character is far more interesting than anything they really do with it in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you can't help but wonder what could have been. Yeah. But quick note, our, our producer, JJ, just chimed in to let us know it is, in fact, Devil Dog, the Hound of Hell, not the dog from hell. But yeah, I mean... <laughs> Is that a huge difference? I don't know. I don't know. My apologies to Richard Crenna, though. Clearly, that makes it a lot more useful of a subtitle. All right. We just mentioned Ernest Borgnine. Well, he's in this, too. He plays, um, he's like a journalist aboard the uh, the space vessel. That's His right. His name is Harry Booth. We just talked about Ernest Borgnine in our episode on The Devil's Reign. He melted for 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, as we discussed in that, and certainly go back to the Devil's Reign for an in-depth um, discussion on Borgnine. But basically, like, there's Borgnine, like, older Borgnine movies are all about, like, the, you know, him being kind of a heavy and a villain for the most part, um, where there are far more of those. Devil's Reign kind of stands out because it's, like, maybe one of the last real villain roles he did. I'm, I'm not sure on that. There may be some others, but certainly stands out for his later career. Um, but, uh, you know, he also probably has a bigger name um, for many of the, you know, the good-natured sort of grandpa-type characters he, he played later in his career. And that's that's kind of the energy here. Like, Harry Booth is a likable guy, um, a journalist who, you know, just wants to bring the truth back home. He wants to stick up for his friends. And uh, there's not a lot more to it. Well, but there is a weird twist with the end of this character's arc. Because he tries to steal the ship and escape and leave oh. them behind. 
Oh, God, yes. I forgot about that. We'll get to that later. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, moving. There aren't many more people in this film. Um, but and this one's kind of a, a head scratcher. So because at this point, we're basically out of humans. It takes place on mm-hmm. a spaceship out in the middle of, uh, of nowhere uh, as, as far as the galaxy goes. So, uh, you know, we're out of humans. But we have this other character named Captain Star, S-T-A-R. I'm not sure what this stands for. But we learn that he's like the, the top gunslinging robot on the Cygnus. Wait, I have a, a note about what STAR stands for. It is Special Troops Arms Regiment. Okay. Okay. It, that works. That works out. Well, they're, they're obviously all backronyms in this because they're like full names. It's like Vincent, and then they make Vincent stand for something implausible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so this, this is not a major character. Uh, this is there's a fun sequence with it. I like this this the scene that involves Captain Star, but yeah, Captain Star is like the um, the best of the uh, the non Maximilian bad robots, and he's played by Tom McLaughlin, born 1950, uh, son of a magician and former mime, uh, and he apparently also studied mime as well, which I guess prepared him for this role of slinging around blasters um, as a robot. Uh, he would go on to primarily write and direct with credits that include One Dark Night from 82, which I've seen all or part of about sorority sisters spending the night in a mausoleum. And there's like a haunted old man with lightning coming out of him or something. Uh, he also wrote and directed 1986's Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. Joe, is that one of the good ones? Uh, define good. That's the first one where Jason is undead. So th- that's uh, where th- that's the first one to introduce explicit magical powers to the series. This is not the one with the the psychic girl in it. No, that's part seven. Part six. Okay. Uh, Jason gets dug up from the ground, uh, and then lightning strikes his grave, and that wakes him up. And then he just you know runs around doing Jason stuff. Okay. Well, um, still, and I guess an important uh, shift in the franchise. Yes. Uh, part six, I think, is it has a more overt sense of humor than most of the others. It uh, it has a lot of jokes and gags in it. Okay. Well, McLaughlin uh, also did an episode of Freddy's Nightmares. He did four episodes of Friday the 13th, the series. 1991, Sometimes They Come Back, which is a Stephen King adaptation, and mostly TV products up until 2010. He also has a small acting role in Critters, too. Okay, but we have a couple of robots (laughs) to hit voice acting-wise. The Critters of Hell. (laughs) We have um, Vincent. Uh, Vincent is our good robot, our lead good robot, and he's voiced by legendary actor Roddy McDowell, who lived 1928 through 1998, best known for the, probably for the original Planet of the Apes series, 1985's Fright Night, as well as such non-genre films as 63's Cleopatra, 41's How Green Was My Valley, but he's in plenty of B-movies as well, such as Class of 84 from 82, 78's Laser (laughs) Blast, um, also, uh, 1996 Predator knockoff called Star Hunter. And, of course, there's 1990s Shockma, Shockma, Shockma. No one under 17 will be admitted. Yes. It's a killer baboon movie. Um, I don't think I'll ever watch it, but the trailer is amazing. And then we eventually... Shockma. <laughs> but then we eventually meet uh, another robot. This is old Bob, voiced by Slim Pickens who lived 1919 through 1983, cowboy turned cowboy actor, best known for roles in 64's Dr. Strangelove, 72's The Getaway, 74's Blazing Saddles, and 1981's The Howling. 
They specified that uh, Bob was built in Houston. Yeah, that's why he has the, 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 the Texan accent, I guess. Yeah, that's right. All right. The music on this one is the, the work of John Barry, who lived 1933 through 2011. Legendary English film composer who won Oscars for his work in 67's Born Free, 69's The Lion and Winter, 91's Dances with Wolves. He also scored 62's Dr. No and as such created the iconic James Bond theme song mm. and went on to do, I think, 12 Bond films in total, some of the best and some of the weirdest. And this also results in him having some composing credits on some of the Bond songs, such as Duran Duran's View to a Kill from 1985. Ah, I, I would argue maybe one of the best Bond songs. Yeah, absolutely. I got to see uh, Duran Duran in concert just last week. And they played the song. It was amazing. They also did Wild Boys. Nice. Uh, so too many scores here to, to mention from John Barry. Uh, but for our purposes, we should acknowledge that he did uh, Goldfinger. He did, um, you know, all those other Bond films. He did Midnight Cowboy, 71's Walkabout, the 1976 King Kong, 78 Star Crash, mm. a, another um, a Star Wars-inspired film, and, of course, 79's Moonraker, which was both a Bond film and also... I guess, arguably a response to Star Wars. Arguably, yes, obviously. We've got to come <laughs> back and do Moonraker one day. I think that's the one James Bond film just kooky enough to, to fit in our, in our wheelhouse. I think it is, absolutely. Uh, as for the black hole score here, yeah, it's sweeping, um, absolutely solid by, by most metrics, I think. It is rather steeped in adventure and glory and, and that kind of like kind of slightly old-fashioned uh, sound, I guess, as opposed mm -hmm. to like, you know, deep, dark mysteries of outer, the outer void, maybe. Um, but I don't know. It, it does have some great kind of, um, I was thinking like drunken ghost ship music as well that mm -hmm. uh, I thought was quite good. So I think it, yeah, it's a great score in many respects. It's hard for me to objectively view, uh, to rate it, though, because because uh, I have that record still in my head, you know, from, mm -hmm. from reading that book as a kid and hearing the music. So um, I think it's pretty great. I mean, the main ominous string theme, I think, is really good, even though it's kind of repetitive, but it sets the mood quite well. There are some other moments, I, I hear what you're talking about, where there are, like, there are fight scenes that just have a kind of bum bum ba dum bum mm -hmm. kind of, you know, triumphant horns that, eh, I don't know, I could take or leave. But uh, on the whole, I think the music is pretty good. One last person I want to credit here, and that is George McGinnis, who is credited as robot designer. He lived, I'm not sure about his birthday, it was, I think, 1930 or thereabouts, and he died in 2017. So Robert McCall, the art director, also did preliminary design work on the robots we see in the movie. But the final designs that we see for Bob and Vincent and, and most importantly, Maximilian, they seem more firmly aligned with the work of McGinnis. I included a couple of uh, images here for you, Joe, that I got off of one of the, the Disney wikis. Mm -hmm. uh, but McGinnis was the last Imagineer hired by Walt Disney, apparently, back in 1966. He worked on such projects as Space Mountain, Epcot's Horizons Pavilion, and the Indiana Jones Adventure Ride. The different robots in this film almost feel like they're from different movies. You know, like Maximilian really has it doesn't just seem like he has a different personality than uh, Vincent. It's like they come from different realities. They both, both the, the Vincent, the Vincent, the Bob and Maximilian, they, they do have, what they have in common is that they are floating robots. Yes. That I, I do like, because it's kind of like, you know, the idea of like, Oh, you have some sort of astromech type robot. 
they're going to work primarily in a weightless environment. And therefore, you know, their limbs, whatever kind of limbs they have, they're going to revolve around moving around in, within three dimensions, uh, multiple limbs for grabbing onto things. And uh, but then there is a lot of stylistic difference because Bob and Vincent are, you know, arguably kind of cute and they have big eyes, you know, kind of they have kind of a pleasing Epcot feel to them. Mm -hmm. Whereas Maximilian is, of course, red and satanic and intimidating and uh, just a fabulous design, but also one where you can't quite figure out at first glance what everything is with his limbs. Um, mm. it, it, yeah, it, it, just fabulous design on Maximilian as far as I'm concerned. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Do you want to get into the plot? Oh, let's do it. I mean, we're, we're being pulled there by the, 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 the gravitational forces. Very interesting thing about the beginning of this movie. Th there is an overture, meaning there is a long opening fanfare with like the orchestra playing over a totally black screen. And for a while, I was wondering, is there something wrong with my streaming service? Like I'm not getting video content, but no, the visuals really do begin about a minute and a half in. Yeah, I... I get what they were going for here, uh, you know, and I guess it's also kind of steeped in an older style. But I feel like most people watching it today are just going to wonder if, um, yeah, there's something wrong with their television set. So we talked earlier about the green grid. When we get to the credits, here it is. We are flying through space. There's a vast field of stars in the background. And we are zooming above and then below the plane of a green animated square matrix or grid, like green graph paper lines floating in space. And we finally zoom out to see that in the distance, this flat geometric plane, 
sharply curves off down into a pit or a funnel, just the way an extremely massive object sharply bends space-time around it. And so, of course, uh, we we get sucked in. We spiral, uh, we spiral around the pit, and then we eventually go down into it. The actual action begins in space with stars twinkling in the dark, and there's some technical sci-fi narration by Roddy McDowell saying things like, Unscheduled course correction due at 2200 rotation axis plus 3 degrees. And this kind of thing goes on for a while. There's just sort of technical chatter between the different characters for a bit. And it made me wonder about something. Um, It made me think about, like, what kinds of choices you make as an actor when you are playing a role that for at least, you know, within certain scenes, it it doesn't have much of any human thing to do where you're just speaking technical dialogue, like accelerate to full power, switching to manual, you know, like what is an actor supposed to do with that? Hmm. Yeah. um, And it's interesting when you think about where they end up going with Vincent, because Vincent ends up being a a robot that is is rather different than C-3PO. Like, yes, they're both robots that are uh, you know, personable, voiced uh, with, a, with a British accent. Um, but while C-3PO is, of course, famously um, cowardly and, uh, and anxious, uh, Vincent here, you know, he's, he's very sure of himself. And he's, uh, he's all about standing up to bullies and uh, supporting his, uh, his human crew members and so forth. So he has a, a different energy to him uh, once you get, get into his character. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I had a whole note about uh, similarities and differences with C-3PO, but I think that's the core of it. I, it he he seems to uh, be modeled on C-3PO, but he is brave and scrappy, whereas C-3PO is fussy and cowardly. And he, uh, a, another difference is that while C-3PO often seems to, though this comes in more in The Empire Strikes Back, C-3PO seems to uh, quote quantitative things a lot like statistics or probability of success things instead they have vincent uh like quoting proverbs quoting (laughs) sayings and proverbs which uh is an interesting personality trait for a robot the movie doesn't really do anything with it but it it struck me that in the context of a story that was more like thoughtful about the meaning of technology that might be an interesting choice yeah, and the idea too that he's here to encourage you uh, in your your, your long distance uh, space mission. So, how do we describe what Vincent looks like? You you mentioned earlier that he's a hovering robot; he floats, but he's sort of a, a metal ball with a whack a mole head that pops up out of the top to reveal his eyes, which are very cute, uh, but mm-hmm. they're just static white squares with black dots in the middle. Yeah, I think the whack a mole feature is key. There there are aspects about him that. That seemed like he was designed toy first in that mm-hmm. regard, uh, but in a way that, that that works well. I don't know. There are some shots where I feel like he's too large. Um, he's really quite big and maybe bigger than he should be. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, but otherwise, I mean, this is a this is a project of uh, Imagineers, so it's uh, it's it's very well put together. But uh, yeah, that's very much like a whack a mole head. Designed for floating, has uh, blasters that come out, little grabbers that come out, little kind of like. I don't know, anti-grav boy, buoys that come out uh, where his legs would be. So there's, there's plenty about him that kind of tracks to an understanding of a bipedal creature, but he doesn't function like a bipedal creature at all. Uh, so he's, he's very functional for a space environment. 
Yeah. And also he does violence, unlike C-3PO. I can't remember if we already said that, but this is a robot that like fights and in fact kills other robots. Oh, yeah. I mean, sometimes he's, he's really kind of a, a, a bastard with it when he's in the yeah. fighting. Uh, the, 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 he's doing like a they're not even shooting at each other. They're doing like target practice with Star. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he ends up like managing to accidentally shoot Star in the chest, yes. <laughs> which is a great sequence. So we learn that this ship is the USS Palomino, and Vincent mm-hmm. is its robot. He's the first one talking, but eventually other voices come in, and they're all chattering back and forth. Uh, we learn that they are on a mission to explore deep space. I think they're looking for signs of life. And the ship has finished its primary objectives. It's on the way back to Earth. So we meet the ship and its crew. Robert Forster, again, is Captain Dan, uh, Captain Dan Holland. He's strong, brave, terse, sensible, dependable. Uh, Joseph Bottoms is Lieutenant Pizer. He's kind of the young hothead. He's ready for adventure and he wants to blast a laser. But he's politely hot-headed. He's yes. <laughs> conservatively hot-headed. Right. Uh, so we, we mentioned earlier Yvette, uh, Yvette Mimieu as Dr. Kate McRae has a strange thing that they decided to do with her character, which is that she can telepathically communicate with robots. Huh? <laughs> yeah, this is crazy because I... I didn't remember this from any past viewings of the film. I don't think this made it into the flip book I had as a child. The idea that she has either, and it's not really, they don't explain if this is, does she have any level of general ESP? Is it robot-specific ESP? If so, why is it there? Is there an implant involved? Or is it like we would get later in scanners, Cronenberg scanners, Mm. where if you have any kind of psychic ability, then you just, if you try hard enough, you can psychically communicate with a computer. You can call a computer from a payphone and read its mind. Yeah. I don't think so, because as far as I could tell, she only telepathically communicates with Vincent. She never, uh, she never reads the mind of any other human that I recall or any robot other than Vincent. Yeah. And that would have been an interesting thing to explore because Basically, like the whole thing is like we're in a creepy spaceship and there are a whole bunch of creepy robots around. That would have been a great opportunity for her character to have some sort of like there's something wrong with these robots scene, you know, Uh where she's like they're not reading properly. Um, But they didn't go in that direction. Odd choice, but okay, it's good. It's mainly used, though, for the plot the same way it would be like if they had a radio communication. She can just talk to Vincent from a distance. That's about all. Yeah, if if they ever do remake this film, and I'm I'm not sure that's something I want to see, but if they were, like this is something they should pick up on. Like this is something from the original film that doesn't doesn't need to be thrown out or completely recreated, but just like figure like explore this further. What mm-hmm. does it mean? Like what if that's just how robots work in the black hole vision of the future, where robots are just inherently like psychically linked to individuals or multiple mm-hmm. people? Like there's a lot you could do with that. Agree. Okay, you mentioned uh, Anthony Perkins. He plays Dr. Alex Durant. He's like a, whereas uh, Yvette Mimieu is a more empathetic scientist, this is a more, he's like a cold intellectual scientist. He yearns for knowledge and historical significance. Uh, maybe diving into a black hole will finally get me tenure. Mm-hmm. And then we have Ernest Borgnine as Harry Booth. This is a journalist who's on board the ship for some reason. Harry, I would say, is the most down-to-earth member of the crew. He's the one who is neither a soldier nor a scientist. And he kind of talks in a plain language. With the, He offers, like, the, the hot dog vendor's perspective on all the techno babble. <laughs> yeah. 
So one thing that was interesting to me once we start meeting the crew and very much sets this movie apart is that when we first meet them, they're floating around. They're weightless. Uh, mm-hmm. mo- most space travel movies just hand wave this away. They, they, they get rid of the physical reality with some kind of magical, unspecified artificial gravity device. More hard sci-fi movies usually get around it by setting the occupied parts of the spaceship within a rotating ring or some other mechanism where gravity could be simulated via acceleration like it would be in reality. Relatively few movies actually try to simulate weightlessness, uh, I guess mainly because it's a difficult special effect to make look right. Like you can do wires and stuff, and if you're really committed, you can film in reduced gravity aircraft like the the Vomit Comet like they did in Apollo 13, but obviously that is expensive and difficult and taxing on everybody involved. So I was going to say I wonder what kinds of effects they used uh, to, to film the weightless scenes in this movie, but right when I was typing that, then I was like, oh, there's, uh, there's Yvette's uh, wire rig. Okay, so yeah, they're just hanging on wires. Yeah, there are multiple scenes in the, the, in the film. It's at least watching it now and the quality that we have it in where you can make out these wires. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things where if the film was perhaps uh, like a bigger deal, like culturally and, you know, was a bigger success, you could imagine they might have gone back and cleaned up some of those wires, but uh, they're still there. It doesn't really, I don't know, it didn't take me too much out of the, the, the film viewing experience, but uh, it's kind of interesting from an effects standpoint. So if you're okay with taking a a quick uh, diversion here regarding the special effects for weightlessness, apparently these effects played a convoluted role in establishing the final cast of the film. Hmm. So I was reading about this in an article for The Hollywood Reporter by David Weiner, published in December 2019, called We Never Had an Ending, How Disney's Black Hole Tried to Match Star Wars. This article is interesting, is worth a read about the movie. It includes a number of uh, things, such as the fact that for the role of Dr. Kate McRae, they were originally wanting to cast a pre-alien Sigourney Weaver but uh, they said that the head of the casting department was like, Sigourney, uh-uh, we're not going to do somebody with that name. <laughs> well, I'm glad, because if this was pre-Alien, I mean, we, we wouldn't want our, 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 our Ripley trajectory to be off. But even that didn't get them directly to Yvette uh, Mimieu. They first went to the Summer of 42 star Jennifer O'Neill, who apparently had signature long hair, And uh, so here I'm going to read from this article in The Hollywood Reporter, quote, we shot one day. I think it was a test. uh, It was a test or something. She was in zero gravity, remembered Nelson. That'd be Gary Nelson, the director. Mm -hmm. She had this long hair down the center of her back. She was always very proud of it. It actually made her career with hair products and everything. And I looked and I said, this is not working. You have to cut your hair. (laughs) And she said, oh, I can't do that. And I said, you're going to have to because that's what I want and it's right for the movie, too. And so she finally agreed. She brought her professional hairstylist, Vidal Sassoon, to the studio. Whoa. (laughs) Nelson continued, they went up to her dressing room and started cutting her hair one inch at a time and having a glass of wine, then cutting another inch and having another glass of wine. And by the time they were finished, it was pretty short and she was looped. I was sitting there when it happened, said Bottoms with a laugh. When she agreed to get her hair cut, that's when I remember the order went out. Like, could someone get me a glass of wine? They would cut more and more, and they kept bringing it up and up. And then they decided to put a little bit of color to lighten some streaks. And you can see Vidal and everyone was concerned. 
Nelson reported that after the disaster haircut session, quote, she got in her car to drive home. She got into an accident on Sunset Boulevard and ended up in the hospital. So we had to recast and we cast Yvette Mimieu the next day. So all that trauma and everything, getting her haircut was for naught. It's kind of a shame. Oh, wow. But, you know, she went on to be in Scanners. So I guess it, you know, for us, it worked out. Wait a minute. She was in Scanners? Jennifer O'Neill? Yeah, she plays Kim uh, Obrist. I think she has top billing. Wow, I missed that. Oh, you're exactly right. Uh, yeah. Don't don't drink and drive, folks, even if you're getting a bad haircut. But she was destined, one way or another, to be in a movie in which someone uses their mind to talk to a machine. That's right. But it was also, it could make these uh, wire rig weightlessness effects look right. Because, you know, if your hair is not floating around, it won't look right. So everybody does have short hair. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Okay, so the first thing that really happens in the movie is that Vincent reveals to the crew he has detected the presence of something nearby the ship. Not just a comet or an asteroid, but something amazing. Quote, the largest black hole I have ever encountered. How many has he encountered? I don't know. He doesn't say. And they pull up an image of the black hole on the hologram machine. In the movie, it is represented as a giant spiraling whirlpool of blue around a black void with an orange dot in the middle. And I realized this, the, the black hole in this movie looks almost exactly like a hurricane. It's got like the spiral of rain bands and an eye in the center. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, based on what we know now about black holes, the thing is, this is absolutely correct. No notes. This is just exactly <laughs> what they look like. 
<laughs> I don't think it would be, but it's, I like it, you know, it's a good effect. I read that they created the black hole by like swirling paint around a drain in a bathtub mm. or something. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it does. It looks great in the film. Uh, even if it is probably leaning a lot more towards, um, you know, ocean whirlpool than anything else. Mm-hmm. So the characters in the movie talk about black holes like a villain character they're trying to build up as the big bad. When they first see it, Ernest Borgnine says, my God, it's right out of Dante's Inferno. (laughs) And Anthony Perkins says, yes, the most destructive force in the universe, Harry. Nothing can escape it, not even light. And then Yvette Minmew says, I had a professor who predicted that black holes would eventually devour the entire universe. (laughs) And then Pizer says, every time I see one of those things, I expect to spot some guy in red with horns and a pitchfork. (laughs) Then Captain Dan, the last of the humans, chimes in, least expressive of everybody. He just says, it's a monster, all right. But there's a twist. Not only are they in the presence of a gigantic black hole, there appears to be a huge spaceship bobbing in space right next to it. How is that possible? Well, scans reveal this ship is the USS Cygnus, a ship that was sent out on a mission years ago to discover habitable life in outer space. That's what they say, habitable life in outer space. I think that line needs an edit. Mm -hmm. Maybe they meant habitable planets or life. I don't know. But it turns out Dr. Kate McRae's father was a crew member on the Cygnus before it went missing. So could it be that he is still alive on the ship they just stumbled across? Perhaps. Uh, We learn a bit more about the background of this ship. I think uh, Ernest Borgnine and Anthony Perkins say things about it. So the mission was led by Dr. uh, Dr. Hans Reinhardt. (laughs) a uh, brilliant but egotistical scientist. And Harry describes how Reinhardt uh, uh, talked the authorities into funding his mission of space exploration, only to ignore orders to return to Earth when the mission was recalled. But Dr. Durant, that's Anthony Perkins, uh, is obviously a Reinhardt superfan, and he says, well, maybe the order to return never got through to the ship. He, He wouldn't disobey an order from mission control. He's a genius and a great man. He'll continue to move the goalpost on this this judgment throughout the picture. So they decide to go in for a closer look. Um, Gravitational forces rattle the Palomino as they get as they approach. Uh, And when they get close to the Cygnus, suddenly there is a uh, there is, quote, zero gravity, smooth as glass. But there's no sign of life or activity on board. And the gravity returns once they pass by on the other side. And this leads to what I honestly thought was kind of a tedious action scene where the Palomino is just getting damaged after it gets gravity blasted. And then Vincent has to go outside the ship on a tether to do repairs. It did not really thrill my soul. I will say I like the look of the Cygnus a lot. I think the Cygnus looks nice and spooky. It has this kind of like kind of scaffolding look to it mm-hmm. with like this inner glow. Uh, well, later when we first encounter, it, it's not glowing at all, but uh, eventually it gets a glow to it and uh, has a, a pretty creepy look throughout. I actually did like that. Yeah. So the look of the Palomino and, and this whole uh, action scene with the repairs is, yeah, I, don't know, I could yeah. take it, take it or leave it. But when they get back to the Cygnus and the ship lights up, I thought this was one of the better pieces of imagery in the movie. Like you say, it has this skeletal outer framework of uh, struts and bars, almost like a cage surrounding an inner surface membrane that glows with yellow light, kind of like a paper lantern, I thought. And I I liked that a lot. 
So anyway, they kind of they fly around the Cygnus and they zoom and enhance a view screen photo of a window from the ship and they see a shadowy figure. So Kate concludes that there are people on board uh, and Captain Dan is apprehensive, but their ship is damaged. So they don't really have a choice. They go and dock with the Cygnus so they can do repairs. And once they dock, they discover they, quote, have gravity, which means that for the rest of the movie, yeah, they'll just be walking around. No more no more wire rigs needed. It's nice to go ahead and take the pressure off of everybody. Yeah, you, know, you <laughs> don't have to have Borg Nine wired for the entire movie. <laughs> Seems like a, a budget conscious rewrite. Yeah. So they head on board the Cygnus on foot, and then after some ominous investigation of deserted hangars and corridors and uh, riding around on a zippy little go-kart, they eventually take an elevator up to the control room. And I thought the control room looked very cool. It is populated by hundreds of blinking lights and screens and these stations operated by unspeaking hooded figures that we see only in silhouette. And then up on a uh, layer of scaffolding above them in the room, there are more hooded figures who appear to be constructing glowing planets in the middle of the room. There's one blue and one the color of flames. I liked it. Yeah, this whole sequence is is beautiful to to, to look at. It has that uh, yeah that seventies Imagineer uh, vibe to it. Lots of color and uh, yeah, t- totally solid. Here we meet a couple of figures. Uh, first, a floating humming robot made of red plate metal with a horizontal glowing red visor where his eyes should be. Uh, he looks kind of like a Cylon, actually, and Battlestar Galactica was out by this point. Uh, I guess similar with, like, the bars for the eyes. Similar, but but far superior. Uh, the, the original Cylons look kind of, I mean, they have that kind of, like, clunky, um, like, suit of armor look to them. While... Maximilian here, as we'll learn, his uh, he's called. It's um, God. I don't know. He's like a. He's he's as much symbol as uh, as artifice. You know, like there's something mm-hmm. about just like the profile he cuts is just so clean, but also hard to distinguish. Like like he has. He appears to have what uh, like three arms per arm. Like each of his arms splits out at the elbow into three different multi-purpose uh, tools. Mm-hmm. I think only two of which we really get to see in action. Um, so and it's just it's streamlined. Like I was thinking, like if they if they did a remake of if, certainly if they had done a remake of Black Hole in the last ten years, they would have made this design overly complex. You know, mm-hmm. this robot would have looked like a Transformer or something, or like the um, the the um, the Lost in Space robot as it's been uh, reconceptualized. And if you added more to Maximilian, you would take something away from him. There's just something about the way he's so streamlined. Uh, he's just he's just perfect. Yes, he's also sort of a devil, isn't he? I mean, mm-hmm. it's a little bit obvious with the red, but he, he does cut cut the figure kind of a demon or an archon. Yeah. But his smoothness is is kind of key. Yeah, I like that he's not a highly textured creature. Anyway, he approaches them, or this robot approaches them, and then Vincent is like, I identify yourself. Uh, but instead, he just turns his hands into propellers and begins to menace. He goes into <laughs> menace mode with, with spinning blades. I mean, it's basically the, what the Lisa Simpson approach, right? I'm going to start doing this and moving right. towards you. And it's up to you what happens next. Except my hands are b- like blender blades. Yeah. And then there is a man in the shadows reclining in a command chair who calls out to the crew in a German accent. And he knows their names. He knows their mission. He has been monitoring their every move. This is Dr. Hans Reinhardt, a, the, the brilliant scientist idolized by Anthony Perkins. 
He explains that uh, Mr. Propeller Hands here is indeed Maximilian and that he will obey Reinhardt's every command. So when we meet Reinhardt, he has wild hair, thick beard, uh, wears an unbuttoned lab coat. I guess with his hair, they would have made him cut it if he was on board the the Palomino, but fortunately, mm. he, he wasn't. Um, he's got the German accent, fairly overt shades of mad scientist, which is kind of odd because I think they're trying to do the Captain Nemo ambiguity where is this a, our dangerous captor or our admirable host? Wh- which is he? Yeah, it seems like they they should have had him tone it down a little bit, especially since the dialogue from the crew members, they keep being like, oh, we can't trust this guy. I don't know about this guy. Seems a bit squirrely. But it's yeah. like, well, yeah, the, the performance is squirrely. <laughs> Maybe you should have had the performance less squirrely. Yeah, yeah. And th- well, they immediately have him, not immediately, but early on, he's saying things like, I'm about to prove to you that the end justifies the means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has some great lines in this. There's one that he says later on. He says, it's about time that people learn about their failures and my successes. <laughs> yes. Just, yeah. uh, he has so many. He has a million of them. He's been it, thinking them up to by himself on the ship for, what, 20 years? He's had a lot of time. We're hanging out only with robots. At least 20 years, because this film doesn't really get into it. But if he's really hanging out next to a massive black hole, uh, I mean, there, time's going to go a little weird on, on this ship, right? Wait, does that mean it would be longer for him or shorter for him? I I forget which way it would go. You're near a large, massive object. So I think that means his experience of time would be faster compared to uh, the outside frame of reference. Oh, yes. So he would have less time to think up lines to say to his guests slash captives. But they they do not address time dilation at all in this film. But anyway, so he recognizes, oh, he's like, hey, it's Dr. Kate McRae. I knew your dad. He worked on this ship. He's dead now. I'm sorry about that. He was my most trusted friend, but he perished long ago. And then he gets up in Dr. McRae's face and he starts telling her that she has the same eyes, the same <laughs> eyes. Should we trust this guy? Sure. Sure. He seems he seems fine. He's a brilliant scientist. Mm-hmm. Well, so they're like, hey, where's the rest of your crew? He says, oh, they didn't make it back. <laughs> you know, he, he claims they were commanded to return to Earth uh, and the ship was damaged by meteorites. So he stayed behind, but sent the surviving crew back to Earth in the escape pod. And uh, since then, he's just been here alone, aided by the robots that he constructed, which include these strange hooded monk figures operating the control room all around them. Yeah, they have these cool, like, reflective mirror faces, like they Mm -hmm. should be, um, like, I don't know, backup for Daft Punk. Uh, It's a cool look. So there are those robots with the hoods and the the mirror masks, and then there are the sentry robots who are, like, burgundy-colored robots armed with laser guns. They're going to be your Imperial Stormtroopers of the movie. Yeah, yeah, and they definitely walk like robots, like they're Mm -hmm. doing the robot dance the whole time, uh, to the point where it's a little silly. Also, this scene establishes a rivalry between Vincent and Maximilian. They, at once, they do not like each other and they keep locking horns. And you can tell there's going to be a payoff of this relationship. But it's kind of strange because at first they're just like repeatedly sort of getting like puffing their chests up at each other over nothing. Yeah, I do love the scene where they do it in the elevator. And like they're just having the face off and Vincent's probably mouthing off. And then Maximilian just turns upside down because he's a free floating robot. Yeah. And, then, and then Vincent starts doing the same thing and doing circles. It's, it's I don't know. It just struck me as like it's, it's nice and weird that, um, that the robots have their own like physical 
zero gravity language for talking smack to each other. I agree. Yeah, it, it was hard to determine exactly what that meant, but y- you got the gist. Yeah. So anyway, Reinhardt does the the Captain Nemo sort of thing. Like he's like, "Oh, consider yourself my guests. Uh, you know, you're you're here, my you're my guests on the Cygnus. There will be dinner later." Um, and uh, Captain Dan says that they're gonna they're not gonna impose on his hospitality. They just need to repair their ship, and then they'll be on their way. Of course, uh, they'll offer Doctor Reinhardt a lift back to Earth, but he scoffs at this. He's like, "Why would I want to return to Earth? I'm on the brink of amazing scientific discoveries here." Uh, because he says if his ship moves just a bit closer to the black hole, yes, it will be destroyed, but he has developed anti-gravity technology that keeps him a stable distance away from it, and he implies that he is about to make some kind of discovery with regards to the black hole that will change everything. So uh, Dan, Pizer, and Vincent head off with Maximilian to repair the ship. Doctors Durant and McRae and Ernest Borgnine hang out to learn about Reinhardt's scientific discoveries, which they will convey back to Earth for him. And this is sort of the end of Act One. And it kicks off a middle section of the movie with the characters in various capacities traveling around the ship, learning and observing strange things. So uh, as first you got Maximilian, he leads uh, Dan, Pizer, and Vincent around the ship to requisition parts for their repairs. And on the way, they observe sentry robots and hooded monk droids silently marching from place to place. Pizer points out, hey, there's, you know, a lot of activity going on here. Are they getting ready for something? And then they meet a new robot, a busted up ramshackle robot uh, <laughs> like Vincent, but this one is named Bob, voiced by Slim Pickens. Meanwhile, Reinhardt is giving Anthony Perkins, uh, Yvette Mimieu, and, and Ernest Borgnine a tour of the amazing technology he's, he's built on board. He has like a giant reactor. Uh, it, and uh, Anthony Perkins says, you'll be remembered as one of the greatest space scientists of all time. And Reinhardt says, I have never doubted that. Oh, yeah. And this is the part where he says, it's time <laughs> people learned about their failures and my successes. <laughs> That's so good. I don't know why I love that line so much. It, it is really great. Uh, but while he's leading them around, meanwhile, Ernest Borgnine just sneaks away to explore things for himself. So he finds one room that's, I think, the control room for the garden where the food is grown for the ship. Mm-hmm. And he finds a hooded robot operating a machine of some sort. And he tries to talk to the robot, but it does not respond. And we get a close-up on the robot's face. Under the hood, it has this reflective metal mask, like a mirror surface. And after he tries to talk to it, it leaves the room limping, like it has a broken leg. Yeah, this is interesting, because again, the the sentry robots all walk like they're doing the robot dance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is something distinctly different. At the same time, Captain Dan, he's riding the trolley around, and he sees a group of hooded robots carrying a large container between them, almost like a coffin in a funeral procession. And he follows them. He walks through a large hall of personal quarters with human beds and offices and closets full of clothes, but it's all empty of human life. Finally, he catches up to the robots and they gather in a solemn formation in a room with external windows and they launch the container into space. In fact, into the black hole. It goes into the black hole. Uh, (laughs) It really looks like a funeral. And then suddenly, Captain Dan is caught by Maximilian. He sneaks up behind him and opens a door. Uh, But Captain Dan stays very cool. He just says, like, must have made a wrong turn, Max. Ah, he's so smooth. I love it. Like, you know, Maximilian would have just gutted him with one of those um, the, yeah. those uh, fan blade hands. But he was just so cool about it. He's like, oh, I guess he really did make a wrong turn. He's back on track now. 
But things are really starting to add up that something isn't right. Uh, while doing repairs on the Palomino, Captain Dan tells Pizer what he saw, and Pizer scoffs. He says, nobody has a funeral for a robot. And Dan says, I don't know if it was a robot. Now here, I think it's it would be good to do a little sidebar on this movie's take on the personhood of robots. Sometimes robots in the black hole are treated exactly the same as people. Robert Forster at one point says directly that Vincent is, quote, one of us. It's like when he's outside working on the ship and and uh, they're like, oh, no, he's going to get lost. We've got to go out and save him. And Pizer says, what if it was one of us out there? And uh, and Captain Dan says he is one of us. And at the same time, Maximilian is depicted as having the quality of moral evil and malice, not just like bad programming. And the Vincent-style robots, Vincent and Bob, both have clear personalities and hopes and desires. But on the other hand, several major plot points and conversations seem to hinge on the idea that robots do not have thoughts or feelings or desires or humanity, like the why have a funeral for a robot point. From what I could tell, the movie's view on this issue was just incoherent. Like, it didn't seem to me to reflect a conscious choice to portray the issue as complex. It just kind of felt like an oversight. But it seems like this is another thing that with with some tweaking of the story, this could have been really interesting to explore. Yeah, especially when you factor in the ESP angle as well. Yeah. There's another thing that it just kind of seems like it's tossed out there, but it could have been very interesting. Like, Vincent the Robot at one point claims to hate the company of robots. Like he can't stand his own kind of being. They're like cats. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Dan is wary. He thinks they should get the repairs done, get away from Reinhardt as fast as they can. Um, the, meanwhile, uh, Reinhardt, Durant, and McRae are up in the control room and they're just trading epithets about black holes. They're like, <laughs> it's the deadliest force in the universe, the long, dark tunnel to nowhere. And then Reinhardt goes, or somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, okay, I'm starting to get the feeling that despite inventing the anti-gravity that allows him to stay above it, Reinhardt wants to fall into the black hole. It's like uh, having a cannon on the stage, right? You, you introduce a black hole or a wormhole or what have you, somebody's going in there. It's like having an, an, an acid vat or, a, um, or a, um, a pool of piranhas, if you will. Right, right. Okay, uh, so a few scenes to briefly mention. There's the laser blasting scene with Vincent, Bob, and the Sentry robots where they're just sort of mm -hmm. like doing the doing sort of carnival game sharpshooting. Uh, we get to know a bit about Bob here, the robot played by Slim Pickens. Uh, Rob, you mentioned you liked the scene. I, I found it not very exciting, <laughs> or at least the parts where it's kind of a special effects showcase, again, for effects that look kind of uninteresting today. Mm -hmm. But I did like Slim Pickens. Slim Pickens brings a lot of personality uh, to, to this role, obviously. Uh, yeah, the actual laser blasting is very mediocre by pretty much, I think, any even contemporary standards. Uh -huh. uh, but what, what I liked was, like, the sudden twist of, like, oh, man, Vincent is... Is kind of a meanie. He's oh, he yes, really yes. doesn't like other robots. I, I did like that where he yeah. So this is the scene where in the end, uh, Vincent kills Star the robot. But it's like a fun he funny kills him. Yeah. We also find out the background that uh, Bob had once beat Star in a shooting contest, and Slim Pickens says he had his revenge. Though he did things to me I sure don't like to think about. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. <laughs>
today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. There's another kind of Captain Nemo-y scene where everybody has dinner with Reinhardt. Uh, for this mm-hmm. scene, Reinhardt changes into a red uniform with medals, and uh, they're served by hooded robots. They get uh, fresh mushroom soup. And yeah, Reinhardt, so- he shows his contempt for Earth. He's like, back on Earth, the news is always the same. Only the names change. Is this the scene, though, where they, they ask um, Borgnine, like, what's happening on Earth? And he's like, I don't know much. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like really there's no news from earth nothing's it's it's all good uh and reinhardt announces his plan to go into the black hole he says in through and beyond and then ernest borgnine says that's impossible and reinhardt <laughs> says the word impossible mr booth is found only in the dictionary of fools <laughs> napoleon okay. says that word is not french <laughs> Uh, But Reinhardt, he trusts in his own technology. He says, this anti-gravity I've invented, it will protect my ship from being crushed as it travels through the black hole. And I'm going to reach other worlds this way. So Reinhardt leaves the room and the Palomino crew discuss all the things they've discovered. Uh, You know, they bring up like all the weird stuff, the robot funeral and everything. And Anthony Perkins just keeps making excuses for Reinhardt. He's he's basically like, it's not weird. Stop trying to make him seem weird. (laughs) Yeah, he really yeah. keeps moving the, the goalpost on on whether they should trust this guy or not. He's like, well, what if he did disregard orders to return home? I mean, he had a he had a, a higher priority here. I mean, he's doing great science. Yeah. But later, after only Durant and McRae are left in the room, uh, they talk about what's going on. 
Durant says, you know, I want to stay behind. I, I want to become one with Reinhardt now. We're going we're gonna to stay here. We're going to go into the black hole. We will journey into the mind of God. And there's this scene, I, I thought it would be interesting to note the religious themes that are emerging, which don't, I don't know if they feel all that intentional in what they add up to, but I do kind of like the, the strange merging of, of science and religion that's going on here. Yeah, yeah, and it, it definitely continues and intensifies. And, Certainly. <laughs> yeah, and the film would be less interesting if it did not have this layer. But on the on the other hand, yeah, does it does it ultimately like make any kind of uh, intelligible statement or argument? I I don't think it does. I don't know if it does, but I but it's fun texture nonetheless, especially mm-hmm. the ending. We'll get there in a bit. Um, but anyway, so there are more revelations that come. Bob reveals to Vincent that the hooded robots with mirror faces are not robots. They are humanoids. They are what is left of the crew mm. after they have been transformed by some horrible evil process that uh, that Reinhardt did to them. Basically, he murdered them all and turned them into to robot servants. When they find out all about this, the ESP comes back. Vincent uses their psychic connection to fill Kate in. Kate explains what's going on to Anthony Perkins. They're both hanging out with uh, Reinhardt. And Anthony Perkins pulls a mask off of one of the hooded robots to see, revealing a human zombie face. Oh, yeah. It's a great moment. And also director's cameo, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, this causes Maximilian to do a brutal attack on Anthony Perkins, and we get the we get a human death here. Maximilian like guts Anthony Perkins with propeller hand to the stomach. Nasty, shocking. It feels, I don't know, more brutal than I expected given the movie up to this point. Yeah, I remember being shocked by this as a kid, even though like rewatching it, knowing it was coming and anticipating it. Like it's there's no blood and afterwards there's no blood on the claw or it's, you know, it's self-cleaning or something. I don't know. But there's something about the way they plotted it where Dr. Duran has this um, this this book, this thick book of um, of of uh, Reinhardt's notes to take back to Earth. And he holds that in front of his chest and the the buzzsaw hand cuts through that and we hear it and see it cutting through that. And then it cuts uh, unseen. Uh, you know, into his torso. And I don't know, it's like having the book violence ahead of the implied physical violence, like mm-hmm. really helps to sell it. And you see Anthony Perkins' face while this is hap- happening. He starts like jiggling around and going like, oh, it's, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's gross. So anyway, after this, Reinhardt sort of chastises Maximilian. He's like, you shouldn't have done that m- murder of a human being. <laughs> But then uh, another kind of interesting moment, but I don't know if it connects to anything else. He suddenly whispers to Kate, protect me from Maximilian. Oh, yeah. whoa, that's a great moment. But I didn't know what, what does this mean? Are we going to learn more about him actually fearing Maximilian? But I don't think we do. Did did that connect to anything for you? Nothing in the actual film. I mean, it made me wonder about all sorts of stuff, especially the whole ESP angle and, you know, the idea that, I mean, clearly Maximilian is sort of, thematically presented as kind of like this um this devil and this and perhaps you could interpret him as being like the uh the embodiment of the the darker corners of uh, reinhardt's psyche or something or soul but uh, you know it's not not really explored beyond you know just sort of the, the visual uh, appeal of it um mm. but yeah if there if, if we are in fact in a world where esp between robots and humans is common you know th- you could use that you could build that up somehow um, 
I'm just remembering there's also some mention about robot human ESP as a means of having long distance communication in space. Hmm. Uh, it's just thrown out there really quickly as well. But that also brings to mind all sorts of like, what a strange, um, you know, universe this could be if it was just uh, developed and they leaned into that weirdness a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, why does Reinhardt fear the robot he created all of a sudden? I don't know. Yeah. Well, he sort of goes back on it, though, because then uh, she's like, if there's any justice, that black hole will be your grave. So he commands his robots to take her to the hospital, which seems to be where humans are zombified and transformed into robots. Mm -hmm. So from here, we get the third act and it turns into an action movie for the rest of the time. So uh, Kate alerts Vincent using ESP. Uh, Dan and, and the good robots go go off to the rescue to save her. They battle their way through a bunch of sentry droids. They rescue Kate and fight sentry droids to make it back to the Palomino. A lot of blaster battles along the way mm -hmm. that were not especially thrilling to me. Yeah, just blasters a go-go. Yeah. Uh, but meanwhile, Reinhardt begins launching the ship into the black hole, and th this is some good stuff. Uh, there is a twist here. While all the action on the Cygnus is happening, Ernest Borgnine, at one point, he, like, fakes a leg injury. Then he tries, when, when they're like, oh, okay, we'll come back for you. He runs off on his own, gets in the Palomino, launches it by himself, and tries to escape without everybody else. Just a, a, <laughs> a sudden, unearned heel uh, turn right here for Borgnine's character. Yeah, he's like, yep, I'm going home without you. Uh, but Reinhardt shoots down the Palomino, killing Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> His final act was one of treachery and cowardice. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a weird choice. Like maybe it's one that at some point earlier on was more supported in the script, you know. Mm -hmm. But OK, now only Captain Dan, Pizer and Kate McRae and the two good robots are left uh, with the Palomino destroyed. Their only hope of escape is to steal Reinhardt's probe ship. So there's a bunch of action scenes, you know, blaster battles with with sentry droids. Uh, also, the ship at this point is being pelted with meteoroids. And there are some nice special effects shots here, including one. I liked where the heroes are running across a bridge in silhouette in the foreground while a giant glowing orange ball rolls toward them from the background. I thought that looked cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I strongly remember that one from uh, from previous viewings of the film. Very captivating. At one point, Reinhardt is uh, so the ship's all busted up and Reinhardt gets pinned by a falling piece of metal and his robots do not help him. And uh, then there is a battle between Vincent and Maximilian. So okay, good, cute little floating R2-D2 robot versus Maximilian, and it ends with, no joke, Vincent drilling Maximilian in the guts, and Maximilian unleashes a goat scream. <laughs> it's a, this is a, a, a robot battle I, I always liked as a kid. Um, I mean, watching it now, I can see the limitations of what they were working with, but, you know, it's, it's like Vincent has ranged weaponry, Maximilian does not, Mm -hmm. Maximilian, though, is heavily armored. Vincent is less so. Uh, they end up, you know, grappling. It looks like Vincent has, like, electroid paddles that he's using to, like, to gra to hold on to Vincent. Uh, but, yeah, he's not suspecting uh, that, uh, that secret drill attack from Vincent. And that's what gets him. Uh, so our heroes escape onto the probe ship, but the probe ship is sucked into the black hole. So everybody goes into the black hole. 
Yeah, but there's like this long, weird ending scene where they're all just going like, blah, 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 and it's, it's like playing yeah. all these like lines from the movie or echoing in people's heads. Mm-hmm. And not even necessarily lines that have like a lot of emotional uh, <laughs> yeah. um, bang to them. I don't know. Like it's just there, just lines from the movie. There's not necessarily any uh, any sense of it. But then the ending, which... <laughs> On one hand, it's almost a non sequitur, but on the other hand, I think it really makes the film. The ending is like they all sort of go to heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there, there's a scene where you see an older version of Reinhardt floating in space, like his hair is grown out and his beard is grown out and it seems to have turned gray. And then he's like merging with Maximilian, like you see his eyes inside Maximilian. And then there is a scene with the Maximilian Reinhardt being standing on a mountain in hell with flames leaping into the sky and like doomed figures in hoods crossing the bridge of Casa Doom. And then there is a- another sequence with a figure flying through the air in robes through a hall of mirrors into a blue clouded sky. And then our heroes emerge from the other side of the black hole and they see like a planet in the distance. It is a bizarre ending, but I, I do love it. Yeah, I mean, it's mostly left open to interpretation. I mean, granted, they're really leaning into the heaven and hell uh, angles here. But as far as what that like literally means or if we're supposed to literally interpret it at all, it's just wide open. Uh, Like I was like just concerning the hell landscape, which is the most impressive and just just like impressive to look at this flaming landscape and the the hooded figures. I couldn't tell if the hooded figures are meant to be the um, the cyborgs from the Cygnus, Mm -hmm. like maybe with their their faces, their their face coverings lost or if they're indeed like the souls of the damned and this is like a Dante's Inferno type of situation. I don't know. It's just left uh, to the viewer to interpret. It seems like in his in the bad afterlife that Reinhardt has earned, he will be tortured by the robots he created. Yeah. But then for the for the blessed crew members, what awaits them? A a, a new heavenly planet? Mm -hmm. Yeah. New home? Kind of a planet in eclipse, like eclipsing a star. Yeah. Yeah. Habitable life, perhaps. Habitable life you can live in. <laughs> okay, well, that's all I got to say about the black hole. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I was really drawn into the uh, to, to the visuals, uh, the sweeping score, uh, some of the performances, and just of course the robots, especially Maximilian. Maximilian, mm-hmm. still, still, still got it. Still beautiful, still enthralling, uh, still one of my favorite robots. Period. I just wish I knew what his other arms did. He kept making me think of that Beastie Boys song, Intergalactic. I'm not sure why. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that's appealing about him is there are aspects of it that look like it could be a costume, but especially in full profile, there's no way it could be a costume because, again, mm-hmm. it's this free-floating form. So, anyway, I could go on and on. Beautiful robot. May Maximilian drill all of our guts. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll go, we'll go ahead and close it out there. But we'd love to hear from everyone out there if you have opinions on The Black Hole from watching it back in the day or uh, watching it as a kid, rediscovering it now, viewing it in the light of Star Wars and so forth. Uh, it's all fair game. Uh, did you have any of the toys? I've looked up images of the toys. I didn't have any of these, but they, they look pretty cool. Uh, you know, I guess you could, you, know, you could bust these guys out and maybe your, you know, your, your um, David Lynch Dune action figures, maybe some Dick Tracy dolls and have a, a, a fun time with toys that maybe not that many kids bought. Uh, But uh, yeah, write in. We'd love to hear from you. 
Uh, just a reminder that we're primarily a science podcast here in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. But on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about weird movies on Weird House Cinema. If you want to see a full list of what we've covered thus far, you can go on over to letterboxd.com. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. We have a profile there called Weird House. And if you go there, you'll see a list of, of all the movies and you can put different filters on them if you want and see like you know look at them by decade and so forth it's uh, it's really cool huge thanks to our excellent audio producer jj pausway if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit Slack.com to get started. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.